Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 343 of the podcast. It's June 5th, 2019. My guest today is Amanda Mewborn. She is an executive director of project management for Piedmont Health. Well, I've known Amanda through the Society for Health Systems for a while now, and she's one of the very small number of people I know who has both engineering and nursing degrees. Amanda has a BS in industrial and systems engineering and an MS in health systems from Georgia Tech, and she also has a BS in nursing from Georgia State University. So in today's episode, we talk about that very unique and interesting combination of skill sets and why she got a nursing degree. We also talk about her career in healthcare, along with some of the facility design and construction work that she's been involved with. We'll also hear her thoughts on why it's important to have the engagement and involvement of frontline staff and patients in the design process, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about a whole lot more. So if you would like to find uh, links to uh, Amanda's profile, information about the Society for Health Systems, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 343. Amanda, hi. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. But can you start off, you know, introduce yourself and we'll, we'll go backwards from here, but um, if you can introduce yourself for the audience and, and what it is that you do today. Sure. Um, I'm Amanda Mewborn. Uh, my background is that I'm an industrial engineer and a registered nurse. I focus mostly on healthcare facility design and construction, but I do some other things too. Uh, I have a master's degree in health systems and a bachelor degree in industrial and systems engineering. I got both of those at Georgia Tech and a bachelor degree in nursing from Georgia State University. I uh, currently work at Piedmont Healthcare. It's a large healthcare system in Georgia, and I work as executive director of project management, where I focus mostly on a big building expansion project that we're doing at our hospital's flagship hospital campus. It's a $452 million project that we're going to open in August of 2020. And I also currently serve as Senior Vice President of Technical Operations for the Institute of Industrial and Systems Engineers. Yeah, and thank you so much for doing that. You know, that, that's, that's how we've crossed paths was through, um, you know, in, in, in particular your involvement in the Society for Health Systems. So thank you for all of the time that you um, volunteer and uh, commit, commit to that organization. I definitely enjoy it. There's a lot of great volunteers through SHS, and I've met a lot of great people there. So uh, definitely a, a great organization. Yeah. Well, and, and I was really excited to have the chance. We, we've talked briefly at the, the last Society for Health Systems um, conference, but I, I think it's, you know, it's fairly rare. I, I don't know. I think I know just a handful of people with both engineering and nursing degrees. So maybe we can kind of start off and, and talk about industrial engineering. You know, how, I'm also an industrial engineer. Um, how, how did you end up um, choosing that as uh, your undergraduate degree? Well, honestly, I was a little tricked into uh, industrial engineering. I, uh, I originally wanted to major in biomedical engineering and I, want, I had an idea that I wanted to develop prostheses for, uh, for folks, maybe even some smart prostheses. 
but my dad was smarter than me. And uh, when I graduated from high school, there was this in-state um, scholarship program that uh, paid for schools in-state. So dad said, hey, if you'll go to this in-state school for one quarter, and I know they don't have your biomedical engineering program, but if you'll go there one quarter, if you don't like it, I'll pay for you to go to this other school. And of course, he was so smart that uh, I went over to Georgia Tech and made a lot of friends. And after one quarter, I ended up staying there. And I majored in chemical engineering because that was the closest thing I thought of uh, to biomedical. And as I started to interview for jobs, uh, my, most of the opportunities were at oil refineries or paper factories, and they you worked independently. And I'm a, an extrovert, and it just I knew it wasn't the right fit. And went to lunch one day with a sorority sister, Mary Ellen Skeens, somebody else who's mm-hmm. really involved in SHS, right. and she told me all about the IE work she was doing in healthcare. And I thought it was fascinating, and I changed my major to IE and went down the healthcare route. So it's been a perfect fit for me. Oh, good. And, and, and so, I mean, I'd be curious to hear more. I mean, what, what makes you say um, that it's a perfect fit? What, what appeals to you, um, what you heard about and what you've seen in your career that makes you feel like, yeah, that was a good change, a good choice? Well, there's a few things. Uh, one is, and IE, we often work with a lot of other people, and I really like other people and um, interacting with other people. So that was a good fit. I really like the efficiency side of things and looking for a better way to do things. Um, my mind just kind of works that way. So that was a natural fit. And then applying it to healthcare uh, is really rewarding because we're making a difference in everybody else's lives. Everyone needs healthcare mm-hmm. at some point, and um, there's a lot of opportunity for improving the healthcare system. And I think IEs are the key to making that happen based on the perspective of how an IE thinks. Mm -hmm. So uh, those are a few of the reasons that I think it's been perfect for me. Um, The thing that appealed to me most when I was speaking with Mary Ellen was uh, the idea of she was telling me about benchmarking and the idea of comparing different health systems and looking for the best way to do things and continuously improving. And that was kind of the hook that that reeled me in. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, my, it's, I mean, it's a coincidence. I started off a freshman in college. My initial uh, choice of, of major was also chemical engineering. Oh, wow. I, I, so Why I, did I, you pick chemical? Was it similar to mine where you just thought, oh, this is similar? Well, I didn't really know. You know, my, my dad, who's an electrical engineer, uh, you know, kind of pushed me lovingly into engineering. And I, I, I liked chemistry in high school. Like I had no deeper understanding or passion for it. But then, you know, I got there and I kind of realized, um, I, I, th- I think like you were saying, I was, I'm more interested in people and systems, uh, different types of systems, like to me, like organizational systems more through than more so than like vats and tanks and pipes. Mm-hmm. That one, I think that was what my future in chemical engineering would have been. So I, I appreciate what you're saying. I feel the same way that industrial engineering was a perfect fit for me as well. Interesting. I would have never thought that there was somebody else that had a similar path. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, sometimes we don't know and we have to go explore uh, different, different paths and fields. And so it sounded like, you know, I want to talk more about your continued exploration. So um, did you get the MS in health systems before the nursing degree? Or can you kind of walk us through the sequence of what led to those steps in your further education? Sure. So after that lunch I had with Mary Ellen, I changed my major to IE.
uh, one year ahead of me. And so she was uh, vacating a position that um, seemed interesting. So I went into that and did that graduate research assistantship and graduated. And after that, I went to work at a local hospital system. I was hired into uh, the decision support department. There was a product at that time called Action, which was a benchmarking um, type product where you could benchmark with other hospitals. And they hired me to do that and cost accounting type work. Um, I enjoyed that for a short period of time. And but pretty much right after I got hired, maybe about a year into working at that hospital, they decided to create a revenue management department. And the purpose was to recoup missing revenues and improve charge capture and work on our managed care contracts and basically do things that we could pull in more revenue. Mm-hmm. And so I moved over into that and kind of served as the continuous improvement person for revenue cycle, which was a blast. I did that for about five years. Um, it was really rewarding because just in the first year alone, we recouped seven and a half million dollars in net revenue uh, that had previously been written off. So it was really, really rewarding. And after a few years, I decided to move on into operations. And that's kind of where I took a turn into nursing. Yeah, so you were very much on the the you know for for people who don't know terms revenue cycle, that's essentially billing and 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 right. Uh, yes, exactly. It's um it's the registration of patients, so collecting the insurance information, um, and it goes through to capturing the charges. So um, you know all the things that the patient receives when they receive their care, capturing the charges for that, and then sending the billing off to the insurance company. And then the insurance company uh, has a contract with the hospital for how much they're going to pay for various things. So the insurance company pays the hospital, but sometimes there's uh, discrepancies in that, like maybe a procedure wasn't authorized or maybe there was um, some glitch in the system and the payment was incorrect. And so there's a lot of opportunity for making sure that we get the registration correct. We do scheduling upfront correct and get the, you know, the appropriate authorizations before we do procedures. And then that we collect the correct amount of money for those procedures after the patient receives the services. So it's kind of that whole continuum. Yeah. And then there's, I guess there's a lot of things that could go wrong in the process through that entire chain that might lead to, as, as, as you said, charges being written off instead of being collected. Exactly. So there, um, the billing is really complex. You would think that we would just bill for an appendectomy, for example, but the bill actually isn't just appendectomy. There's uh, thousands of lines of charges for various mm-hmm. things. And so when it goes to the insurance company, uh, there's a bunch of codes uh, that get processed and uh, the contracts it's, are, it's hard to process those codes and determine what the correct amount of payment is. Uh, based on the contracts. And it's mostly automated through a system. Um, but, you know, the system's only as good as it's been programmed to do. And so checking those payments, you can find um, oftentimes a, a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you switched into operations. So maybe if you can just kind of continue, like what, what were your next steps and, and what led then to um, the nursing path? Well, um, after doing that revenue cycle stuff for about five years, which I really enjoyed, I um, saw a lot of opportunity in clinical operations. And uh, specifically, I was seeing things like we were having nurses enter charges and things like that. Um, And I just overall, as working in those environments, I saw opportunities there. And I looked around and I saw that everybody that worked in operations was a nurse. And I thought, well, I can go to nursing school on the side and get all that knowledge that those nurses have so that I can work in operations 
And I'm, so I kind of did that on the side. I, I did it secretly because I was afraid that I wouldn't like nursing school and I'd drop out and somebody would be disappointed in me. So I uh, went and completed the prerequisites at a local community college, like in the evenings. And after that took me about a year. And after that, I enrolled at Georgia State and showed up for my first nursing class. And uh, again, I was doing this all as a secret. And as luck would have it, uh, the CNO from my hospital was the guest lecturer on my first day of nursing school. <laughs> Whoops, busted, right? <laughs> yeah. So after the class, he came up to me and he's like, hey, what are you doing here? So I've tried to keep my secret by saying that I was just auditing the class, but no one audits nursing classes. And he knew that. <laughs> so he agreed to keep my little secret, but it ended up not being necessary to be a secret because I ended up. Uh, loving nursing and, you know, really stuck with it. But while I was in nursing school, I ended up getting an opportunity at another local healthcare system, working more in uh, the service excellence realm and more in operations. And so I changed jobs during nursing school and, and went to, to do that job. And when I finished nursing school, I picked up a second job on weekends working as a nurse, um, which I loved. So it was it was kind of a, a curse, actually, though, because then I I was engineer and nurse, and I wanted to do both. So I don't recommend it for other people um, because you know if you like both of them, then you know you end up with no personal time because you want to do all these things. <laughs> right. So wow. So you had that that sort of dual life, double jobs. Um, was it? So I mean, I want to explore. I'm really fascinated by like parallels or, or differences, not just in the jobs, but in, you know, kind of the way of thinking um, that's, that's taught um, in engineering school and, and what might be different in, in, in nursing school. But, may, but maybe just, you know, first before you're talking about having that second job, um, how can you, do, are there stories that come to mind of, of things that were frustrating, working as a nurse, but you still have your engineer mind, um, things that you saw or things that you couldn't quite I mean, engineers are driven to improve, right? So I'm, I'm, just, mm-hmm. I'm curious what's, if there were frustrations or things that jumped out at you working, um, actually working as a nurse. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, you can't turn off your engineering brain just like I can't turn off my nursing brain either. Yeah. And so I'm constantly looking for ways for things to be better. And of course, we all know that one of the types of waste uh, and lean is the waste of skill. So um, having that background as an engineer, it would be really wasteful for me to not apply it when I'm working as a nurse. So um, I constantly saw things like even down to simple things like how the supply room was organized and the layout of the supplies, um, how the equipment room was laid out. We had this one patient room on this unit that I worked on where we kept all of our equipment. And inevitably, every time I needed a piece of equipment, it was the one in the very back and I'd have to pull everything else out, you know, to get to the piece of equipment I needed in the back. So just simple tools like 5S and um, and layout and even what equipment and supplies are there um, were opportunities that I saw in the clinical environment. And then there were even process things um, like how we got our medications from the pharmacy and the timing of that and how uh, things were batched. Um, the batching of how uh, rounding happened with the physicians rounding on patients. I saw so many opportunities. Um, and of course, I tried to tackle some of them, but some of them are so systemic and so big. One nurse working one shift isn't you know, going to make a dent in those. So yes, it, it, it did drive me crazy um, having that, that perspective as well. And I mean, you raise a really good point about 
the waste of talent, the waste of skill. I mean, unfortunately, this happens far too often in, in healthcare, where even if uh, a nurse or staff member in, in whatever area doesn't have an engineering degree, they often see things that are more difficult than they should be. <laughs> they might have ideas um, about how to improve, and, and sometimes they're not um, engaged or listened or, or tapped into. So, um, thinking ahead, or you know, I guess um, as, as you went into other roles, have you been able to help um, create an environment where that that skill or those ideas for improvement from improvement-minded people don't don't get wasted? Yes. So uh, my current focus is on facility design and construction. And uh, one of the things that I'm really passionate about is having the folks from the front line be engaged in design. Um, I truly believe that the best ideas come from the front line because they live it every day and they have ideas for how to make things better. Oftentimes they're just not empowered to act on those or they need additional resources to make it happen. So on the project that I'm working on right now, uh, we had more than a thousand people involved in the design of our building um, and 543 of those people were patients. And um, having that uh, experience from the front line uh, engaged in how to design the facility and how to set up our workflows and how to uh, make the experience better, I think is going to be incredible. I can't wait to open this building and, and get feedback and see people um, enjoying some of the, the changes that were put in place from the front line. So I, I think that would probably be the biggest thing is um, that I do in, in my current practice is uh, engaging the front line. And then the other thing I, I strongly believe in is going to the Gimba. So oftentimes people will ask, you know, how something works or what something, you know, is like. And instead of just relying on um, my own knowledge or, you know, what I saw happen last week, just getting up and going out there and uh, seeing how it's actually happening and talking with the people at the front line, uh, it can really cut out a lot of waste and uh, catapult things forward for for making improvements. Yeah. And what, what I hear you saying is you're not relying on your past experience as a nurse, which is different than the reality people might be facing today, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, of course, there's so many technological advances and things um, improving and even evidence. There's so many research studies and so on out there that practice is constantly changing. And so relying on my own personal knowledge, it might not be exactly what's happening today. Um, and it might not be current practice. Um, so getting out there and finding out what's happening today and what's on the, the horizon, I think is really important. Yeah. Um, one other question comes to mind just as a, as a follow-up, you know, you talk about, um, you know, working as a nurse and things that didn't work as well as they, they could have, things that weren't as easy as they could be related to supplies and, and, and things like that. Um, I've had a couple of different conversations recently with people who work in healthcare who are um, very improvement minded. And, and there, there's, this, there's this theme, and I've, I've never quite heard it said this way, and I'm curious to get your reaction to it, that in particular, one nurse said, you know, she speaks up, she has ideas, it would be easier, it would be better if we do this. And, and part of the, the kind of pushback that she's gotten from her leaders, paraphrasing, is that, well, this is just how nursing is. And the implication is, um, like, well, you know, that, that, that the nursing has ideas to make the work easier somehow isn't strong enough to deal with nursing. And, and, and I find it, like, to me, that, that's a really foreign mindset. It's just, it, it's, 
I mean, it's not foreign. It's different. It's a different mindset. And I'm, I'm, I'm just curious, open-ended question, what your thoughts or reactions are to that? Well, um, I kind of think it's like when you ask somebody why they do something the way they do it and they tell you because it's been done that way for the past 20 years or however long, um, nothing that that's like nails on a chalkboard for me. I cannot stand um, that answer. And so um, I believe it's a culture of continuous improvement. And in order to build that culture, uh, the answer that we've done it this way for 20 years is an unacceptable answer. Um, we should look further and deeper. So, um, you know, the response of this nursing leader saying that things have always been this way or it's something ingrained in nursing, I think um, maybe missing the mark and a little short-sighted um, yeah. and looking at the opportunity. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, just other differences as, as you learned, as, as you got your nursing education, like were, were there some things that jumped out at you as being, um, I guess, you know, first off similarities or, or parallels um, between, you know, engineering thought process and the nursing thought process? Well, um, they are similar, you know, they're both based in science. And um, so you would think that nursing would come natural to an engineer, but it really wasn't natural for me. Um, I actually got a D like in dog in my first uh, nursing class. So um, it definitely is a very different type of thought process, even though they both are founded in science. Um, engineering is really logic based while in nursing, a lot of things are based on perception or gut instinct. There's a lot of assessment that happens that you end up going with your gut. So like as an example, the monitor, uh, the patient monitor might show that the patient is doing just fine. But then when you assess the patient, um, you get a very different picture. So um, when we think about things like AI and stuff like that, that would be very engineering based. It doesn't pick up on a lot of subjective things that are important in nursing. Mm. Um, Another thing is engineering is really methodical and sequenced. And, you know, we do a lot of planning as an engineer. But in nursing, uh, we have to have a lot of flexibility to do things different than the way that they're planned. So um, as an example, uh, we might be planning that we're going to give medications out to our patients at 9 a.m., just as an example. But oftentimes something happens that requires us to do something else at 9 a.m., like transport a patient for a radiology exam or clean up a patient who might have become ill or maybe even a patient coded and we've got to work a code. So I think in nursing, it requires a lot more flexibility. So what has actually been planned um, isn't actually what ends up happening most of the time. Um, Another difference that I I saw was engineering kind of breaks down work into a series of tasks. Like we, that's how we analyze things, right? And do time studies. We look at a series of tasks and we can break nursing down into tasks, but there's a lot more than just what meets the eye with a task. There's a lot of um, critical thinking and uh, adjusting on the fly and kind of multitasking in nursing. So as an example, a nurse might be going to give a patient a medication. Um, but when she's giving that medication, the engineer could be you know, doing a time study and thinking that it's just giving the medication. But while she's doing that, she's doing a lot of other things like assessing the patient. She might be assessing even the patient's interaction with their family or friends um, that might be in the room. Um, and picking up on other things that, um, that aren't really captured in a time study. 
So there's just a lot else that's going on that isn't um, may, might not be visible um, from an engineering standpoint. Mm-hmm. And then there's like there's even like efficiency differences. Like as an engineer, I think well, it would make sense that if I'm going to give six patients medications, why don't I go to the medication room one time, get all the medicines I need for my six patients, and then go give it to my patients? But from a nursing perspective, they would never do that. They would do the less efficient thing and go to the med room six different times mm. and only get the medicines for one patient because um, they would be worried about safety and making errors and giving the wrong patient right. the wrong medication. Yeah. So um, it's just there's a lot of fun things um, between the two professions that um, kind of play off of each other. But it, they're, they're very different um, thought processes and mindsets, but putting mm. nurses with engineers is a really powerful uh, combination um, because yeah. of that, that difference in mindset. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, yeah. I've, I, you know, as, as an engineer who's had the, the privilege of working in healthcare, I've never thought engineers alone are going to somehow come in and, and fix healthcare. It's partnership with nurses and pharmacists and doctors and, and whatever other uh, disciplines and roles, um, we learn mm-hmm. from each other and collaborate. That's, that's awesome. And it's fun. <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> yeah. when people have different perspectives and I feel like we come up with better solutions when we do have that, um, diversity in, in our thought. Yeah. So Amanda, I'm, I'm curious, one other thing, um, is, is there something that you wish, um, let's say engineers like myself or, or managers, um, is, is there something you wish they knew or understood better about nursing? Yeah, I know uh, before I was a nurse, I sometimes felt like as an engineer, when I worked with nurses, I felt like uh, they were like standoffish or um, maybe sometimes even difficult to work with. And I guess now that I have the nursing perspective, um, what I'd say is I know nurses are always wanting to do what's best for the patient, not Mm -hmm. that engineers are not, Mm -hmm. but um, I guess engineers take a look at everything being broken down into a series of tasks and very analytical but nursing is really hard to break down into that. Um, while there are a lot of tasks, you know, like administering a medication or um, providing a therapy, there's a lot of other things going on that really can't be captured as a task. And um, I guess when doing a time study of a nurse, you might see them doing a particular task, but there's a lot else going on, like assessing the patient or assessing a relationship with family member in the room or many other things that might be happening that you might not pick up on. So um, asking about those things whenever you're working with nursing, I think is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'll tell you in my experience, um, I, nursing work can be difficult to observe and do time studies on because a lot of it is, uh, it seems to be, it's, 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 uh, it's not just physical work. There's, um, there's mental work. And, and, and that's where I think, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the collaboration between engineers and Nursing is powerful. As an engineer, I can teach nurses how to observe work and collect data and do observation, but it, it's their knowledge of the work, I think, that allows them um, to do a far better job of, of, you know, kind of analyzing the work than I would be able to do as an engineer. I think it's a partnership. I think it mm-hmm. takes both skill sets. And um, I've seen yeah. or felt like the, the most rewarding uh, projects I've worked on have involved the partnership between the two just because of the... Mm-hmm. Um, the different perspective or paradigm with which each operates from. Yeah. So um, let's talk about, you know, it's always fun talking about uh, improvement work and 
And I was wondering, you know, if there's you know, an example or a story that you could tell about, so, you know, some healthcare improvement work um, that 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 you know I think is a good illustration of of partnership and patient focus and and you know what if you can just share something with us, please. Um, sure. I kind of uh, have two areas of passion with improvement. Um, one of them is in quality, which I don't uh, currently do a lot of work in this area. Um, but when I first joined Piedmont, uh, I did do a lot of work in this area. And something that was um, that I particularly enjoyed working on was uh, Clostridium difficile infections. You might have heard of it. It's called C. diff. Mm-hmm. And um, these in- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, these infections are, you know, often deadly and um, often hospital acquired and happens after patients have um, antibiotics that kill some of the good bacteria in their gut. And uh, one of the first projects I I worked on at Piedmont uh, was for this, and we had this multidisciplinary group, uh, included physicians, infection prevention, nursing, um, just a whole gamut of folks, um, even finance folks. And uh, the thing that was really exciting to me was um, having all those different perspectives and uh, looking at what was currently happening and what we were doing and coming up with some actions um, to try to make improvements. And we tested them on small, um, a small scale. And doing that, we achieved a 38% improvement in our infection rate just in the first six months um, of working on it. And so, um, that was really rewarding and actually really fun work, um, because of the, the diversity of the group of people that we had working on it. Uh, not to mention, of course, the, the outcome that we achieved was, you know, very positive and, um, you know, gratifying to know that we made such a difference, um, in such a short period of time. We worked on it for a longer period than just the six months. And our ultimate goal is zero infections, which we've gotten pretty close to and have several months where we have zero of these infections, uh, where we used to have these infections routinely. So, um, that's been really, really fun. Before talking about, uh, construction, can, can we dig a little deeper into the C. diff reduction? Yeah, Sure. Yeah, so I was wondering if you can kind of set the stage. You're talking about having a, a diverse team of, of people. Can you talk about what your role was and, and who some of the other people were that were part of that diverse team? Yeah, so my role was um, mostly as project manager. Um, and as project manager, I just um, tracked all the different initiatives that we were working on uh, to try to make improvements. Um, there was initiatives from even things like rounding on patients, all the way to things like implementing uh, changes in EPIC, which is our electronic medical record, um, to changes in um, how and when we collect uh, specimens. Um, so with C. diff, there's two kinds of C. diff. There's one that's called community onset, which means mm-hmm. the patient had it when they came here. And then there's hospital onset, which means that we caused this for the patient while they were here. Um, and this bacteria are, is particularly um, contagious. It's not killed um, by regular hospital cleaners. We have to use bleach or another cleaner called oxyside. Um, and so um, even down to things like testing efficacy of those different cleaners and whether those cleaners can be used on the products that we have in the hospital, like our furniture and flooring and so on. Um, so the, the team members, we had um, an executive nursing leader, We had folks from, there's a group out of uh, Duke University um, that helps with uh, this particular kind of initiative, and we had folks from there. We had our chief medical information officer. We had an infection prevention or infection control uh, doctor. 
Um, we had folks from our pharmacy because um, as we give antibiotics, that uh, kills this good back, gut bacteria and can result in these infections. So um, antibiotic stewardship was a really key part of, um, of this process. We had folks from the lab um, because of uh, the way that this is this test is done. We got in. We actually, as part of the project, got some new testing equipment in that uh, does the testing um, more rapidly. And um, so we got uh, folks from the lab on our team from microbiology. Um, we had folks from our infusion team um, because there's a treatment for this that is a drug infusion, and um, we actually did a pilot of this type of infusion at one of our hospitals. So we had folks from there as well as um, our environmental services team uh, because we did a lot of testing there where um, after a patient who had C. diff is discharged, we have to use different cleaning um, protocols for cleaning that room to make sure that we don't transmit that to the next patient. Um, C. diff has a spore. It's like a, imagine like a hard shell on it that doesn't get killed by normal cleaners. So we had folks from environmental services and then, um, of course, from our infection prevention team and then also from IT for uh, data and reporting. So it was a, a pretty diverse uh, group of team. And my role was mostly as project manager and um, to identify um, and facilitate the different improvements that we could make. And once we identified those, figuring out how to test them on a small scale and measure the results from it before we rolled it out housewide. Yeah, so you, you came back there at the end. I was going to ask another follow-up question about you know testing ideas, and you know either in the context of this project or in general. Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the importance of testing ideas on a small scale? I think it's extremely important. Um, oftentimes in healthcare, like I've mentioned, nursing sometimes goes based on gut, and we think uh, that one thing might cause uh, an issue or might be the solution. Um, however, um, there might not be any science to prove that, or we might be on the cutting edge of it. So by testing things on a small scale, it allows us to basically use the scientific method or PDCA um, before we roll it out housewide and do a whole lot of effort to roll something out. We, we need to prove that it actually works first. So it was, some of the tests were simple things, like, for example, um, we in the emergency department, um, we put a sign in the bathroom uh, that said, if you have diarrhea, that's a symptom of C. diff. If you have diarrhea, here's some, um, some specimen cups. Please leave us um, a specimen and you know, put your name on the specimen cup so that we could go ahead and test for it. Um, so just small things like that that we would test and see if that made a difference um, and, and how we tested patients and how we caught these things earlier. Yeah. And, you know, I, you know, I was taught, and I think in my experience, doing small tests of change, um, you know, making it small not only helps us prove things out, but it also helps avoid big, widespread, costly um, mistakes, you know, if we try something that doesn't work. And, you know, so let, let me let me shift also and, and talk about the work you've been doing in facility design and construction. And, you know, first off, are there ways of doing small scale tests of change in the process of designing and constructing a facility? Um, it's a little harder <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, m most of the improvement work that we've done um, with the design and construction is um, taking away the mentality that things have to be done in sequence. 
that um, I have to sit idle until the person before me gives me um, some piece of information. So we've done a lot of overlapping uh, things and working um, as a team and more collaboratively instead of, for example, waiting for the design to complete and then they throw it over the fence to the construction team and then the construction team analyzes it to figure out if it's constructible and you know come up with how much it's going to cost and then it go back to the design team because it's over budget. We, um, we kind of got rid of that kind of cycle um, as much as possible on, on the project that I'm working on now mm-hmm. by including the construction team up front, even in our user meetings, so that um, the construction team hears the concern from the users. And while the design team might come up with one solution, the construction team might come up with something else. Um, and so by us all working together, um, it's eliminated some of that back and forth uh, cyclical um, action and taken a lot of time out of the, the process and I think improved the quality of our, our documents and our construction um, by, by changing the nature in which we work. So is the work, can you talk a little bit more about the um, expansion project at um, Piedmont Healthcare and, you know, what, what's driving that and, you know, what, what, what's some of the approach here you mentioned um, before having a lot of staff and patients involved. Um, can, can you kind of talk about it? You know, again, first off, why why the expansion, and, and two, why taking a different approach that engages people? Um, sure. So uh, the expansion is desperately uh, needed. We um, are beyond capacity eighty percent of weekdays. Uh, today, as an example, we are on complete diversion. Uh, we have more patients than we have places to put patients. Um, and so that was one of the reasons driving the expansion. We're also located in Atlanta and um, our population is growing much more rapidly um, than the use rate of hospitals is declining. So we all know that the use rate of inpatient beds is declining and people are trying to get more care in an outpatient setting. So we got a lot of questions about, well, why are you adding beds? Well, it's because um, the demographic, the age 65 plus uh, demographic is growing faster than the rate at which the inpatient beds uh, use is declining. Um, And then we have some infrastructure opportunities on our campus too. About 40% of our buildings uh, will be beyond the end of their useful life by the year 2021 without this tower. And so that's a significant portion of our our campus. It was um, originally we moved to this campus in the 1950s. And so we just have some aging infrastructure. And then we have um, many um, destination service lines here. Um, Piedmont Atlanta is the uh, most acute uh, community hospital in the country, um, which means that the sickness of our patients, it's measured by something called case mix index. It's the highest of any community hospital in the nation. And um, so a lot of people come here for these specialty services. And um, we wanted to offer a different experience for our patients and visitors, as well as our our staff, we need to be able to attract top uh, talent to be able to deliver this high level of care and um, wanted to offer a different experience. So that's some of the why behind it. Um, As far as including uh, many viewpoints, uh, one of the challenges in design is Uh, You can imagine that building a million square foot building uh, from the time that we started design back in early 2016 until the time we opened the doors in late 2020, you know, many years go by and a lot changes, including the people that work here. And so um, one of the important things in design is to mitigate personal preferences. 
So mm-hmm. I might have a personal preference for, um, for something, but it be incongruent with the standard way of doing things. So one way to, to mitigate that is to involve a whole lot of um, a whole lot of users or participants in the design, so that we have multiple perspectives. Um, another thing that that helps do is none of us can predict the future, and so since the building will open for you know four years after we designed it, we want to make sure that we're thinking about what could happen in the future and design it to be as flexible as possible um, if there are changes. So um, just to give a few examples of that, um, things like instead of installing like fixed cabinetry, which locks us into exactly where someone's going to work or where supplies are going to go, we try to have things mobile. Um, And that allows us to change, like, for example, um, supply rooms on an inpatient floor. It allows us to change the layout so that if we go from organizing our supplies based on service line, like here's all the GI supplies and here's urology and so on, and we instead want to organize them by uh, type of supply, like here's all of your catheters, here's all of your bathing um, supplies and so on, we can make those changes on the fly without any construction um, in our supply rooms. Um, some of the other ones that we did were in high, high end procedure areas. Um, so thinking about things like cath labs and, um, operating rooms that are for heart or hybrid operating rooms, we involved, um, physicians from many different disciplines in the design of those so that, uh, we made sure that they accommodated all of the different types of things that we might like to do in there. So as an example there, the hybrid operating rooms are used um, both by our structural heart uh, invasive cardiologists, as well as our peripheral vascular uh, physicians. And the setup of the room is slightly different, you know, depending on what kind of procedure you're wanting to do. But we wanted to be able to do both of those kind of things in that room. And so including um, both of those types of physicians in the design allowed for more flexibility in how we use that room and optimizes the use of it so that it's not sitting idle, um, you know, whenever, you know, if, if only, if peripheral vascular only works on Mondays, it doesn't sit idle Tuesday through Friday. So there was a lot of that um, in the design. Mm-hmm. And then we included a lot of other like community members. We have a neighborhood advisory council. So there's a lot of residential neighborhoods around us. And it was really important to us to um, be a community asset so we included them in our, our design as well, uh, especially of the public spaces. So what would be offered for them, like our auditorium where they can host their neighborhood meetings and our outdoor plaza where there could be Saturday morning farmer's markets or yoga, um, as well as our, our restaurant and coffee shop, which would be community amenities that these residential neighbors could walk to. So we were, um, it was really important to us to get their perspective as well. And then, of course, I mentioned the patients, the, you know, the, really at the center of it um, is the patient. And we had over 500 patients involved in our design and giving us feedback and um, helping us understand what's important to them. Um, many of us have been patients, but hearing firsthand from, from the patients what's important to them um, and making sure we incorporated that into our design and, and really centered our design around that was was really key for us. Yeah, because I imagine um, you talk about personal preference for staff. There might also be, or you know, personal preference for patients, and and so likewise, it's important to get many many voices of the customer, if you will. Yes, um, and so to to do to do that, we um, 
we kind of took this approach where we wanted to identify what was most important to them. And um, the number one thing that was most important um, to our patients was access to our clinicians, like, you know, your nurse or your physician. But the surprising one was the number two most important thing to our patients was they were concerned about their family members or their visitors that were there to see them and making sure that those family members were taken care of. Mm. And uh, we knew that was important, but we didn't realize it was the, the second highest priority for our patients. So um, we actually uh, did the design of our patient rooms to be larger and have a whole dedicated area for the family because the patient then knows that the family member is okay if the family member is right there. And we also changed our policies um, for allowing family members to use things like uh, the patient bathroom and shower instead of having to go to a guest center um, for those things because it keeps the family at the bedside which makes the patient more comfortable in knowing that their family members cared for. So there was um, some key little snippets that came from that um, that really strongly influenced our design. Yeah, yeah. Well, one other question I ask is, is somebody asked me the other day, and I'm not involved enough in facility planning and, and construction. Um, it, it, you said it's hard to predict the future. And uh, you've already addressed this a little bit by talking about um, flexibility, but what, what, what methods do you use to try to forecast, you know, you've got population growth, you have aging population, there's also other trends of healthcare relying less on inpatient stays. What, what are some of the forecasting tools or is there some sort of modeling that's done to look at different scenarios? Um, there is. So there's, um, there's several different uh, software uh, programs out there that do analysis based on the census. Um, and then there's also, of course, information where um, like the number of people moving to an area and the demographics of those people. And if we collect the, that demographic information, we know that based on that demographic information, what type of services uh, these folks are likely to need. Hmm. So um, as one example, we do a lot of heart related things at Piedmont Atlanta. And um, one example is that we're in the South. Um, the South is known for our delicious Southern food, often fried. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all know that that um, butter laden and fried food uh, contributes to heart disease and obesity. And so knowing that that um, population is, you know, the population that we serve, we wanted to make sure that we offer those services that the folks are going to need. Um, each area, you know, the demographics are different and what, what folks need is different. Another thing that happens is um, with all of that kind of Southern food and um, Southern lifestyle, um, and I'm, I'm making generalizations, Not I'm from the South myself, and I would like to believe that I don't, you know, do these things, but um, it also, like stroke is a really common uh, thing. So we want to make sure that we have um, all of the proper uh, technology to be able to care for the patients that are in our community as a community hospital. So um, we analyze all those demographics and then um, there are use rates by uh, each demographic group. And so we use that to then forecast uh, volumes of uh, patients. And the volumes will be usually by service line. Um, there's use rates, you know, for each different uh, type of service, like oncology or orthopedics and so on, broken down by demographic group. And then we forecast that and we uh, then apply some capacity statistics 
So um, most hospitals op- like to operate around 75% capacity. That's kind of the sweet mm-hmm. spot usually. And um, so we can forecast out those volumes and then back out that capacity factor to allow us time to you know, maintain rooms and turn them over and all that stuff. And that gives us what's called key planning units, which are the key drivers for what goes in the building. So examples of key planning units are things like operating rooms, cath labs, number of um, beds. And then from there, we can create what I call uh, the ingredient list. Um, It's known in facility design as a space program, which lists out every single space that goes into a building. So it's, um, if you think of a recipe, it has the ingredient list of, you know, how much chicken you need and cheese and whatever other things. This is the same for a building and it lists out like how many toilets, how many offices, how many supply rooms, all the different things we need and how big each of those needs to be. And then from there, we um, start doing what's called a test fit. So um, kind of laying it out on a, on a floor plan and trying to fit it um, onto a floor plate um, or within a, the structure of a building. So it's, it's, an, it's a really cool process. It's a lot of fun to work through. Yeah. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask, um, you know, in, in the spirit of, of practicing lean, and, you know, this is something I shared a little bit about when I talked at the Society for Health Systems Conference last year and, you know, in the spirit of, of the book Practicing Lean, where, um, you know, a number of us kind of shared stories looking back. I mean, can you think of a situation you know, kind of early in your career, something that you would have handled differently today, knowing what you know now? Oh, gosh, I don't think that there's any, uh, anything I've worked on that I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't change or see an opportunity for making an improvement to. Um, I guess one thing, uh, early in my career, when I, when I worked at that first hospital and revenue cycle that I mentioned uh, earlier, Uh, The hospital system was building a new hospital and the executive who was responsible for that had graduated from the same program I had at Georgia Tech. And um, I thought this new hospital thing was going to be really cool. And I asked her for the opportunity to be involved in figuring out how this new hospital would work with the existing hospital. They were about a 15 minute drive apart and the new one wouldn't have all of the support services that the existing kind of main campus would have. Mm. Um, And she afforded me that opportunity, even though it was well outside of the realm of what I probably should have been working on. Um, And so I facilitated these work groups to map out the processes for everything, like from how we were going to transfer patients to supply chain to revenue cycle. It was across the board. Um, And I look back and when I did this, I spent ungodly amount of time trying to make these maps really pretty in the computer. Mm -hmm. And that was really all waste. Um, I, I think now if I was to do that again, which I, I actually do it now for a living, um, I definitely would not waste my time on making things pretty. That's not what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have mapped the processes um, instead using things like the sticky notes on butcher paper or even using whiteboards um, and so on and not really focus on the prettiness of them, but the functionality of them and the, the information in there. Um, so I think I've, I've come a, a ways with, um, with that, but I can, every single thing I've ever worked on, I can think of a way that I would have done it better. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's just the curse of being an engineer, right? <laughs> I was, I was just going to say the same thing, the curse of a continuous improvement mindset, but mm-hmm. you know, it's good. It's good to reflect and share, um, on, on things like that. And, you know, you ended up giving, you know, some, some advice to others, but maybe others need to 
you know, kind of sometimes learn on their own. They're like, ah, but no, nah, it's not too hard to make them pretty. And then maybe they'll come to that same conclusion themselves. Um, yeah, it's there's just a and to think of it as waste. I mean, it, it is waste because like what value is being provided in making that look pretty? Yeah. Um, really none. Well, you, then then there's the the tough situation where sometimes as an outside consultant, this is going back a ways, um, the client has asked for these things to be made pretty. And so now there's the mm-hmm. conflict where like, I, I think it's waste, but the client, this is where, you know, the, the lean concept of value being defined by the customer. Like, oh, I had to just kind of just suck it up and and make it mm-hmm. pretty. I tried to make the case that maybe we don't need to do that. But um, in that case, the voice of the customer um, won out. But um, do, do you have uh, another piece of advice that you would want to share, um, you know, for young industrial engineers, young society, for health systems members, what advice do you have for people who want to work in healthcare? Maybe other than I've already said it, join the Society for Health Systems. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I love healthcare. I think it's the most rewarding career path anyone could possibly take. Uh, we all need it. Um, the industry affords the opportunity for us to make a positive difference for other people every day. And I, I can't imagine anything more uh, gratifying or rewarding and it's, it really inspires me, and it, but it's a responsibility. Um, I believe healthcare needs more industrial engineers, mm-hmm. um, but it's, I, I consistently find it's really difficult for folks to break into the industry. Um, a lot of the jobs for IEs in healthcare, I know IEs, when they graduate, they'll start looking for jobs that have the title industrial engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pretty much none of those in healthcare. I've never held that title and I've yeah. never seen a job with that title in healthcare. So I guess my recommendation would be to look for analyst type positions or positions that um, have words that uh, reflect what an industrial engineer does and don't just you know, search for industrial engineer and think beyond, you know, just typical industrial engineering. There's a, that's a huge skill set as an engineer and uh, think beyond that and how your skill set can contribute to whatever position you see posted. Um, And just use that to get in the door, get your foot in the door. And then from there, prove your value and you'll take off. Um, But I think that's, it's really hard to break in. And that would be my, my advice for how to go about breaking into it. Okay. If, if you had a magic wand, um, what's one thing you would change about hospitals if you could wave that? Hmm. Maybe the reverse of that is the better question. I don't think there's anything I would not change. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. Maybe there's one thing I wouldn't change. Um, maybe I wouldn't change the compassionate nature of all the people who choose healthcare as a profession. That's probably about the only thing I would keep the same. Other than that, I think just about everything in healthcare and in our healthcare system um, has a huge opportunity to, to be changed and improved. It's Our system's really broken. Um, and I would change just about everything. Where, where, where would you start? I'm going to still try to pin you down on one thing. Now, it's not that you could only change one thing. What's the first thing you would change? Hmm. I think a lot of things are driven by our payment model. Um, and I don't want to get into political beliefs or any of that, but I think our payment model um, is driving a lot of how things work. And it also drives a lot of how people um, and what care people receive. And so maybe starting with the, the payment model might be, that would certainly, if we change that, that would certainly be a gigantic domino to change a whole lot of other things within our system. 
Yeah. And, and, and I don't think that's strictly even a, a political discussion. If you're, we're looking at, I assume you're talking about kind of the predominant fee for service model, as opposed to value-based purchasing or, or other models that um, people have been trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what the, I don't know what the perfect model is, I guess is the challenge. So it's easy for me to say, change the payment model, but um, I hate it when people, you know, suggest something like that and then they don't have a solution. So I'm a little hesitant to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes it's easier diagnosing the problem than it is to come up with uh, good countermeasures and, and maybe we can come up with something that's better if, if perfect doesn't exist. Right. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, and a final question. Um, you know, we've, we've mentioned the Society for Health Systems again, but you know, I, I love the organization and, and I appreciate your involvement in the leadership. What, what, what do you like most? And um, I, there's probably more than one thing. I keep asking these limiting questions. What, what do you like about your involvement in the Society for Health Systems? Uh, well, I consider the Society for Health Systems my home, my like professional home. If you looked at one professional society that um, I would most affiliate with, SHS is definitely that. I feel like they're kind of my people. Um, I'm really comfortable with these people. I love the different um, types of folks we have. We have engineers, we have clinicians, like nurses and physicians. We have performance improvement folks like lean green belts and black belts mm -hmm. and Six Sigma trained folks. We have administrators and then just many other types of roles. And so that variety of, um, of type of person that's in SHS is something I enjoy. Um, I really also like SHS people because they share their learnings. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't like, you know, when they figure something out, they're not eager to like, you know, keep it to themselves. They're eager to share it with everybody else and help everyone else. Um, with solving those problems and making that impact in their healthcare community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we all know that as we share, it's improving, you know, one of the most vital parts of our society, which is delivery of healthcare. Um, and then I like um, also the variety of the type of work that these people do. So uh, when you go to the conference, some people are talking about supply chain. I'll be there talking about construction. Other people are talking about quality improvement throughput. There's just a real um, diverse set of, um, of skill um, that this, that, you know, this improvement professional can contribute to. And, and I think probably one of my, one of my most favorite things is the social interaction. Um, just feeling like that there's a network out there that I can bounce things off of and get guidance and advice and, um, you know, just having that network, I think is, is a key thing. It just, makes me feel at home and supported. Mm -hmm. Great, great reasons to be involved. And uh, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. So I would encourage people um, to uh, go, go search for Society for Health Systems uh, online. Um, so Amanda, thank you so much for uh, taking time to share with us today, you know, your unique combination of perspectives as, as an engineer and a nurse. And, uh, you know, I wish you, um, you know, uh, wish you the best with uh, the new expansion project that you're doing there at Piedmont Healthcare. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And um, as part of our continued networking through SHS, I hope we'll talk again soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure and appreciate the, the opportunity to work with you, Mark. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. 